1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member
0: FDSE. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Now, the IIs is, is like we said, in Madagascar. Mm -hmm. The range is more the eastern side obviously in, in the in a forest habitat what can they teach us
1: what's so incredible about this finger on the eye, eye is there is a ball and socket joint that allows it to rotate almost 360 degrees
0: many species are in crisis and need your help join the movement at allcreaturespod.com Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. I, this is the perfect animal. I, goblin shark was, was perfect for the month, but the I-I, next up for Spooky October, <laughs> I'm staring at it in the face. Wow. Wow.
1: The I-I is a fascinating creature. Uh, a night spirit is actually what the word lemur means in Latin, so covering... A family member of the night spirits. Okay. And they're the world, yeah, and they're the world's largest nocturnal primates. So they would be out during spooky October in the evening. And they are just bizarre in so many different ways. Eye-eyes have special teeth, special fingers, cool feeding behaviors, kind of like a woodpecker. I mean, and then they and then their looks too uh they're
0: (laughs) just look at them they're just they i mean they're 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 called the world's weirdest primate it and there's definitely
1: truth in that and and chris that face that face of the eye eye it looks a little gremlin like and it might be the face that only a mother and angie can love (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> you can love them. You can love them. Yeah, they're, we're going to describe them in a minute here. They're just, they're fascinating. They're fascinating creatures of Madagascar. So always love going back there. And I'd like to to dedicate this episode to a special friend, uh, to Jen, who is my brother Joe's partner back in the United States. She has a little dog named Cupcake that looks like an I eye to me. Little,
1: <laughs> no, I just opened mixed. up the picture you sent me <laughs> she is so special she is something i mean uh yeah like a fuzzy white little gremlin so cute oh with her bowed legs oh my goodness oh cupcake i love you and i don't even know you
0: so so shout out to little cupcake who is the eye of dogs and to
1: jen the mother that loves little cupcake yes
0: yes -hmm. yes. jen loves the podcast beautiful
1: inside and out i'm sure cupcake is
0: but I also want to give a thanks to our Patreon supporters. Uh, they have all voted on next week's species. So we will dedicate that one to them. It will be a good one to, to end the month of spooky October. And we're actually going to be sending money to the orangutan project. So I'm excited about that. Yes. I'm actually going to send some all extra right. money to them because listening to Leaf and all the work he's doing, I just, uh, you know, I, I'm going to give a little bonus money this month to him. So thank you for that. But again, you know, on Patreon, you're supporting us. You're supporting conservation. It helps Angie and I pay the bills and and keep us doing this week in, week out. We've got some fascinating interviews lined up uh, that are coming. And just stay tuned for that. So thank you.
1: And Chris, I have to give a huge shout out to Feedspot because we ranked in their top animal podcasts. So Feedspot is a group that goes through and listens to and rates and reviews and tells you everything you want to know about all the different podcasts out there uh, that you have interest in and, if you search animals, we are in the top, uh, I think the top 10 spot, which is such great news for this podcast. It means A, people are listening, but B, hopefully we're starting to uh, circulate a little bit more besides just friends and family and word of mouth. So uh, we're very circulated. grassroots. Chris and I don't do anything. We just record once a week and cross our fingers and hope for the best. Uh, so, but yeah, so for uh, spot to say, hey, they're pretty good. Uh, Made my day.
0: Yeah, I know. I like it. I love looking at, at our statistics and I always love to see downloads in Uganda and Kenya and Tanzania. And I always expect, you know. I
1: wonder if there's any in Madagascar. To... We'll have to try to to make sure there are I, after this week. I haven't.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen any Madagascar, but we have a very good following in Europe, Sweden, uh, Germany. Shout out to all of our friends in Europe. And then obviously Pips neck of the woods in the UK. Uh, and especially down here in you know, Australia. So you know, thank you so much. Wherever you are in the world listening and learning and sharing, it, it just means the world to us because we are really doing our best to educate you on these animals and the plight that they're in, especially the aye. I and was gonna deep, say, speaking yeah, of the eye, yeah, endangered. Yeah, they, they are in deep, deep trouble. And it's fun to talk about a spooky looking species and, and for people that are just listening and, and can't really look at a picture and I'm going to date myself a little bit, but to me, when I first saw it, the first thought I had was the werewolf in the movie, an American werewolf of London, which was like one of the freakiest werewolves I've ever seen in a movie. It's an eighties movie, but how, how do you describe this, this, <laughs> this animal, yeah.
1: Well, Chris, there's a lot of different ways to describe it. Uh, some say that it has a cat face and a squirrel-like body, but then a primate features as well. So, uh, some think it's cute. Some think it's ugly. Um, I tend to be drawn first and foremost to their really bushy tail. I love, love bushy tails, and this is a long bushy tail that's longer than their body, but. If you start at their face, the eye I. I. is a primate, right? And so, and so their face is a little bit lighter color, white grayish, sometimes light brown, as compared to the rest of their body, which is usually black or dark brown in color. So they're typically a black to dark brown creature with this lighter face. Their hair is a pretty good length uh, and coarse. And like I said, there's that bushy tail. And then the tips of the hair in the adult eye-eye take on a white or silver appearance. And so, I mean, to me, their coat is just really beautiful with these scattered white guard hairs against the dark black color of their body. And within their face, which is once again like lighter gray or creamish color, they have these beautiful yellow-orange eyes. And their eyes are big. Uh, because they're a nocturnal animal, which we'll talk about. And they have dark markings kind of just subtly around their eyes and then a short, pronounced snout with a cute little pink nose. And their ears now, Chris. The eye eyes ears is something special in and amongst herself because they are big. Some say they're triangular. I think they're more... Uh, egg-like, uh, the top of an egg, uh, n- like narrow and oval, but very big and they don't have any fur on them. Uh, and we'll talk about that when we get to the hearing section in physiology. So I do I mean, I don't, I probably didn't do them justice, uh, I,
0: I because just, when you say cute, I'm laughing, I'm laughing. I'm like,
1: Oh, well, cute. cute and, like kind of maybe yeah. like a, like a hairless Chihuahua or a pug, or uh, you know, just dogs that are. Some say they're cute, and some say only a mother can love them. Uh.
0: <laughs> cupcake, no, I'm sorry, Jen, sorry, Jen. We all love Cupcake. Just, uh
1: but but I you know. mean, honestly, they're and then we'll talk we'll talk about their hands independently, their hands and their feet, uh, because they're just they're just so unique. But yes, their their tail is just super bushy, and that's uh, of course a lemur trait or uh, and I just I just I just love them and out of all the prosimians, which include the bush babies and the lorries and the lemurs and the tarsiers, the eye-eye's tail is the bushiest. The hairs are actually the longest on the tail, so they win the tail award and then it's also very, very long as well.
0: Oh yeah, it's like yeah, up to twenty four inches or two feet, sixty centimeters, just the tail. Now, their body length is, yeah, I see anywhere from 14 to 17 inches or up to 40 centimeters. Uh, And they weigh only about four pounds or two kilograms. So, Mm -hmm. again, that lemur size that we we come to expect in the family, yeah.
1: And, yeah, Chris, although they're small when you think of a primate – They are the largest nocturnal primates because there's other nocturnal primates, but these guys are actually the largest. And I think a lot of it's in the tail, the tail and and the the, ears.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the ears. But but, I mean, think about it. You know, all the primates down in South America, you know, there's quite a bit, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, so in the new world and then in these old world ones. Now, the II is, is, like we said, in Madagascar. Mm -hmm. The range is more the eastern side. Uh, obviously in in the in a forest habitat i mean they find them in the deciduous forests they find them in plantations uh some of these mangrove forests or the dry scrub forests so you you find them in all different types of, of environments but obviously with trees because as you're going to find out especially when we get to behavior that's where they spend their life is is up in the canopy right right mm-hmm. yeah very very arboreal now angie uh, you know why care not just because they are so unique looking and they are endangered, but they do, all these animals in Madagascar are contributing to the health and biome there, right?
1: Oh yeah. The I is critical for Madagascar's ecosystem. So they're omnivores and we're going to talk a lot about their nutrition behaviors because they're just incredible the way they forage, but they eat a lot of fruit as well. And so the I is really important as a seed disperser. And once again, with some of their unique foraging behaviors, uh, they participate in something called percussive foraging, which is very similar to a woodpecker. And so the I.I. is like the woodpecker in Madagascar. So they fill that niche of helping remove insects and larvae from trees to help the trees survive. And they also make holes with their teeth, which I'm getting a little ahead of myself, And then those holes can be used by other creatures uh, and they – well, they're nest builders too and sometimes their nests can be used by not only other IIs but other animals as well. And so the II is just such an important animal in the Madagascar forest on many different levels of the food web, especially being an omnivore.
0: Oh, they're just – yeah, they fill such a unique niche compared Mm -hmm. to a lot of the other species.
1: And the II, Chris, is also something to be really, really celebrated in my opinion, these Obviously, their looks, their physiology, all that. But the II was thought to be extinct uh, back in 1933. And it was rediscovered in 1957. But since then, um, their numbers are really low, estimated between maybe 1,000, maybe 10,000, but probably not with all the deforestation and other habitat loss um, and or um, poaching or killing of eye eyes, in Madagascar, and I know we're doing Spooky October, and actually, that's why this podcast is so fascinating to me because I learn and grow so much. Uh, of course, as an uh, animal enthusiast and researcher, scientist, uh, and behaviorist, of course, but Chris's podcast also teaches me a lot about other cultures and just being more reflective with uh, even some of. Our own, my own stereotypes or poking fun because we did want to cover the eye eye because it's this kind of spooky looking creature. Uh, but in all reality, I don't want to portray it like that at all in the podcast because in Madagascar, the eye eye has a really, really bad reputation. In fact, it's killed a lot because the eye eye in Madagascar is thought to be an omen or a demon or a spirit of bad luck or evil. And a lot of people will kill them even just when they see them. And then there's also a myth out there or a superstition, whatever you want to call it in Madagascar, that if an eye points its middle finger at you, which we'll talk a lot about their specialized hands and fingers, when, uh, when we get to the physiology. But if it points its finger at you, that means you're marked for death. And so they'll kill it a lot of times. And I just, I mean, obviously that's not true. Uh, there's there's several IIs housed under human care by wonderful zookeepers uh, that are, of course, not dying when the I.I. Yeah. points a middle finger at them or whatever. Yeah. And it's not even pointing at them. It's probably just like accidentally. They have yeah. really big, long middle fingers. Yeah. And so I don't know. So that's where it's like. I don't know if I want to portray them as like this spooky or e- anything to do with evil or bad luck or dark or whatever, uh, because because depending on where you're listening from, if it, if it is downloaded from Madagascar with a title of like the spooky eye eye or something, I, I don't want that to to be the headline, right? We always I don't want it to be like like a clickbait type thing. So, anyways, this is my push for the title to be something very very boring, like eye <laughs> eyes are cool, or are awesome. IIs are, are misunderstood <laughs> or something. Uh, our eyes are endangered uh, just because, you, I mean, because we are international, I was not educated in this, especially um, since, because I'm not a primatologist and I uh, didn't work with a ton of primates in my career, uh, pretty much just golden lion tamarins. So, yeah, just something to be considered about and be thinking about. And if anybody ever tells you that the I.I. is an omen for bad luck or something like that, it is definitely not. And uh, it should not be killed. And I know it's probably a cultural thing in Madagascar. I don't want to come off as a Westerner being like, this belief is wrong or something. But they are endangered and they're in trouble because of habitat destruction. And um, I don't want them to be in more trouble because they have a bad reputation and I definitely don't want all creatures uh podcast to um encourage that bad reputation so they're cute they're beautiful and they will bring you good luck
0: (laughs) no and it it, so this week you're reading about that but about how they are persecuted really and and they are heading straight towards extinction it's really sad so anytime we go to Madagascar, I'm always curious to see how they're doing. And and one thing that's been, you know, on, on our minds in the past year is how conservation is doing during this COVID pandemic. You know, here we are in October 2021. This pandemic's been going on for 19, 20 months, two years for some places almost. And it's really impacted conservation. And we know that. So I wanted to check in on Madagascar and just kind of see how they were doing in the past year. And there's, there's some good news mixed in here. It just always is like, Oh, Debbie Downer. But here's the reality on the ground there. Now with COVID Madagascar seems to be doing okay, actually, you know, compared to a lot of places in the world as of October twenty. there was only close to 44,000 confirmed cases of COVID with just under 1,000 deaths in Madagascar, which is great. It's still sad numbers, but great compared to a lot of other nations around the world that have, have greatly suffered through the COVID pandemic. So Madagascar seems to be doing okay. They are vaccinating their population. Close to almost half a million people have been vaccinated out of the twenty-eight million that live there, so obviously, still a lot more work to do uh, getting vaccines to these these other nations around the world. What Madagascar got hit with, Angie, was this year is they got hit with a massive, devastating drought. That you know, in the gonna rainforest. In, yeah, I'm going to get to some of the uh, the climate change scientists. But it, they just got just devastated this year with, with with a really with a really horrific drought that led to insect infestation, sandstorms. They lost sixty percent of their crops, and is leaving you know close to over a million people severely impoverished with severe food insecurity. So they have thousands and thousands of people, and adults and children, who are suffering from malnutrition there now with that real quick researchers which is interesting about this famine is this is the only famine ever documented on earth so far that has been directly attributed to climate change and nothing else there has not been any other contributing factors normally with famines there's other factors political instability civil wars man-made causes of over farming things like that that can lead to famine. So there's there's many causes of a famine. This one, researchers are saying, is the very first one that they can say climate change absolutely caused this famine. And they said, sadly, Madagascar contributes very little to carbon in the environment. And they are the first country to, to face a modern famine because of it. So what's going on there in Madagascar? And obviously this is going to affect the i, I. and the lemurs and the fossa and all the unique gosh, we even back to chameleon. I remember we covered it, talked about like this, the world's smallest chameleon, I believe lives there, if I remember right. It, it, there's so many unique species there. And obviously this is affecting it because the rainfall patterns in Madagascar in the last decade have become completely unpredictable. They're all over the map. And it's, you know, they're saying the fields are bare, the seeds aren't sprouting, they are in desperate trouble. Then you combine that with COVID, and not so much, you know, the population hasn't been hit as hard compared to other places, but there's no tourists coming in. And a lot of these places in Madagascar were really rely on tourist dollars to help support and prop up their economy. So they're getting really hammered this year. Really a lot of, a lot of uh, challenges on top of already challenges that they faced.
1: Well, Chris, that's where coming from like the Western point of view, it's, it's where I'm often just like, Oh, just stop the habitat, um, urbanization, habitat destruction type deal. But that's, easy for me to say over here when, well, we do it in Florida as well. Um, and it's over there and they're experiencing all these hardships you just mentioned. I mean, I mean, they need money to survive and, and the rainforest provide a lot of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. I mean, some of the data, 75% of the people in Madagascar live on less than $1.90 $1.90 U.S. per day. Wow. So they're surviving that's on
1: that's That's crazy. Yeah. I can't yeah. even imagine. So,
0: so there is a lot of poverty widespread in Madagascar. And so that leads to, you know, hunting and over-collection of animals and, you know, bushmeat trade and things like that for them to survive. So they're faced with a lot, a lot of challenges. And this is what conservationists know. They know these challenges and... And they were addressing them because Madagascar is, is really an, an ecological hotspot uh, in the world. So the good news is there's over 500 conservation projects ongoing in Madagascar. So with all these projects, I mean, they, they, they provide employment opportunities. They engage the local communities with this focus. And, and it's really helped Madagascar turn some of this around. But because of COVID, this is probably similar very much around the world with a lot of conservation projects in the works. I know when we talked about Sumatran Rhino, a lot of stuff still on hold there in Indonesia is it's gotten way more expensive for these NGOs to operate. And a lot of them are from out of the country and they can't get in country to run their projects so it's really hampered a lot of a lot of conservation efforts so there was a report especially specifically s- focused in on madagascar and conservation and the authors did bring up a lot of their challenges you know just costs of operating from a distance have gone through the roof for them and they just said it's having a major impact you know, Coupled with the fact that you don't have tourists coming in where a lot of that money is used and reinvested in conservation activities, people have lost their jobs working with conservation. So now they're faced with starvation and now you have this famine. Everything's hitting at once. So scientists don't know the impact yet on what that's had on, on Madagascar's wildlife. But if I was a betting person, I would say it, it, it has hurt quite a bit and it could it could be hurting the 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 II. Now, the good news is conservation groups are aware of this and what they're pushing. And this this is what excited me about it is more locally based conservation activities that are resilient to this type of stuff and benefit, provide benefits and engage local communities, my mind went straight to all of our Whitley Award winners that we interviewed. Of course, yes. Oh, like Dr. Paula and uh, Kenny and and all of them around the world that the, the main theme was empowering locals to protect and preserve their native wildlife. So like you said earlier, it's kind of funny how you were mentioned that earlier as a Westerner coming in saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. What COVID is showing us and actually advancing and pushing is we need more locally based conservation. We need locals to take care of their backyards, right? And we need to empower them. Now, they need money that's got to come from external sources, international sources. We understand that, but if we can take those funds and then invest it in the locals and power them, then that would be resilient to things like COVID and, and whatnot. So for me, that's a lot of hope, even though the things in Madagascar this year are, are, are horrific. They're really bad. They're just, that's just the the bottom line from the reports I'm reading and, The opinions I'm reading of of conservationists. Just it's gonna force us and hopefully force the conservation community to empower locals more. Like like those, if you haven't listened to the Whitley Award winners, please go listen to some of them, those interviews. They are such heroes and they give me a lot of hope for the future. So primates are always fascinating because that's where we all started
1: well um, and especially class- these ancient primates too oh, okay.
0: right yeah, yeah 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 really ancient really ancient uh you know there I, I did read something though that about a criticism on us calling lemurs and the persimians like really this is what it looked like 60 million years ago and they were like no these guys have evolved yeah they're ancient ancient mm-hmm. lineage but they have evolved over 60 million years like the ii with some insane adaptations which we're going to get to here in a second all right real quick class mammals 5500 species order primates over 600 species the suborder again we did this with bush babies strepsi rahini so that is about 114 species of lemurs, the potos, the lorises, the bush babies, or the, the galagos. all, you know, the lemurs, right? And I've said that all of those are streptocerini in the suborder. All other primates are monkeys, are apes, us, our suborder is haplorhini. So that's how they, they divided it out. Now, what's interesting about the I.I. is it's the only species left in the family Daubintinidae, it's a big word, that is left. The giant I.I., which I would have loved to seen, was the other recent part of this family. And it went extinct about a thousand years ago, which I'll talk about. Here
1: right. Yeah, I was reading about that.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So there was one that was about twice as big as today's eye. Now the genus is Dobitonia, and the species name is Dobitonia Madagascarrenesis. Yeah, I love those scientific names. Okay, <laughs> just skip them. I just don't even mess with them these days. All right, the giant I.I. was about five times, they say two to five times as large as today's I.I., so it could be anywhere from like 20 pounds, two to three feet probably in body size. They have only found a few fossils, not a ton of them, but they have found fossils that have shown that it lived and that it went extinct about a 1,000 years ago. Interestingly... Humans really didn't settle Madagascar until about fifteen hundred years ago. I did read a paper because I, I get so dorky in this stuff. I, I just love the history. There, they have found some human settlements that might date back eleven thousand years ago, but nothing. It, it's it's contentious data. It's being debated. They think maybe they were just explorers that lived there but left. Really, humans did not settle. And really start to dominate the environment in Madagascar until about 1,500 years ago. Then about a 1,000 years ago, when we see the giant II go extinct, where we see the elephant bird go extinct, is when Madagascar started becoming a major trade hub in the Indian Ocean. So people started coming to Madagascar, leaving Madagascar, and you see some of these species start to go extinct. So that's what happened to the poor giant iI and and we really, really don't want that to happen.
1: No, because uh, that really yeah. wasn't
0: that long ago. No, it's not. and it it always makes me think of New Zealand. you know, humans weren't here until about five hundred years ago. So right. when the Europeans and they
1: have left their mark.
0: Yeah, so when the Europeans started exploring to the new world, you know, the Americas, The Polynesians made it down here to New Zealand. They landed and they drove our giant bird, the moa, extinct, the host Mm -hmm. eagle, extinct, and a lot of other species. So humans definitely have have impacted everywhere we've gone. But, okay, jumping back into this really quick, primate evolution we've covered a lot. Uh, I'm seeing data anywhere from the earliest uh, Prometean's 55, 65 million years ago. That is about when we, we split out from that other group or when they split out from that other group. We have covered this before. Lemurs rafted over from Africa about 47 to 50 million years ago. And remember, I, I we go back. It wasn't the fossa didn't land there until about 20 million years ago. So I always laugh that the lemurs had it so good for so many millions of years. With not many predators. Um, but where the II fits in all that, Angie, interestingly, is heavily debated. Some have proposed that the II actually came over earlier or at a different time than the lemurs on this raft of vegetation floating across. Interesting. Yeah, to Madagascar. Because the II is how do you even put this? It is wacky. It is so different.
1: Yeah, Chris, I read that it's basically eluded proper classification since it was discovered because what? of all their weird physiological right. features. Their teeth, the teeth, which we'll talk about, their toes, yeah. all the of it. The
0: teeth is one of them. So I, I I wanted to jump in here with the teeth because it has such yeah, an impact on, on where they place them. So the II has incisors that constantly grow, which we don't see in other classes except rodents. And rodents constantly chew. It's like, just think of a beaver. Uh, Squirrels do this too. They constantly chew to grind down those teeth. So they at first placed eye eyes in rodentia, thinking Mm -hmm. they were a type of rodent, like a squirrel. Uh, because it looked like a squirrel too, right? That bushy tail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then they said, well, it looks more like something that's like a cat. It's cat-like, so it's a feline. And there was this huge debate for in the late 1800s, early 1900s, on where exactly the ii fit. Now, I will tell you today, with DNA, ii clearly belongs in primates. And they, they say it's the most basic form of lemur we have on the planet. So probably somewhat resembles of what was around millions and millions of years ago before, say, lemurs took off and evolved into the ringtails and the, what, the black and white ruffed and all the beautiful lemurs that we have today. So they clearly are primates, but those teeth, Angie, Crazy.
1: So incredible and very unique, uh, (laughs) to say the least, but they need those teeth for their foraging behavior, uh, which we'll talk about when we get to nutrition and which makes me wonder if it's, if they, these teeth radiated to keep growing as a form of convergent evolution, uh, similar to rodents in uh, North and South America, or I guess across the globe. I don't know. uh, But clearly, clearly the specialists and the taxonomists uh, don't know either. (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah. Well, all right. Just, just some facts because I, to tie all this in together, their physiology. So you have these teeth that are important for, for foraging and, and, and hunting, right. Really quick. The IIs I saw this number kind of all over the place, but on on average lives maybe 10 years in the wild. Under human care, they've lived 22, 23 years with their, again, wacky, weird, different physiology are those hands. So can we tie in all of, (laughs) you've got these teeth that constantly grow and now you have, some of the strangest looking primate hands you will ever see.
1: Yeah, they're very unusual, but they're unusual with a function. They're very, very specialized. And one of the features on their toes or their fingers that I.I.'s have, that's not super unique um, to primates, but they have this specialized grooming claw. It's also called a toilet claw which that was a new term to me. Um, I always just thought it was a grooming claw. But this toilet claw or grooming claw is a specialized nail that can be found on s- several species of primates that's used for personal grooming. And we talk when we talk about primates, we talk a lot about aloe grooming, where one primate will groom the other. Uh, and this toilet claw or grooming claw on the eye-eye is more used for self-grooming as they're not a super social primate, uh, which we'll talk about when we get to behavior, uh, but it is really unique in the claw. It's it's somewhere, it's like a hybrid between a claw and uh, just a thickened nail. And when you zoom in on it, it, it looks really unique and then different than um, the other nails on these fingers. And so, Chris, I, I have to say that uh, the long middle finger, the skinny skeletal looking middle finger of the II is probably the spookiest thing <laughs> on their bodies in my opinion because it almost uh, compared to the other digits on the hand uh which technically the fourth the, the ring finger if you're comparing it to human anatomy is longer but the third the middle finger is just elongated in general but very slender and looks like like a skeleton hand
0: it does but it
1: does but what's so incredible about this finger on the i is there is a ball and socket joint, which is called the metacarpal phalangeal ball and socket joint in the metacarpals of the middle finger that allows it to rotate almost three hundred and sixty degrees and so if you think of a me- if you think of a ball and socket joint in humans that's like our shoulder right. So not all the fingers can do this, and I don't. I can't think of another. Definitely not another primate, if not another mammal that has this ball and socket joint in their digits in their in their no, hands anywhere. I can't think of one. Let, no. and, and it's just this one finger, and it's basically used to help scoop out insects from holes that they will chew into trees. Uh, And we're going to talk a lot about that when we get to nutrition. And it's just an incredible physiological adaptation. And when you were talking about evolution and how uh, researchers are thinking that, oh, perhaps I I didn't come across into Madagascar the same time that lemurs did that it may have came earlier. And then, of course, they might be in more ancient, there might come from a more ancient lineage of primates, but they are ever evolving. And I have to wonder if the, the teeth that continually grow and, or this bizarre, like I can definitely say, but maybe not. And I don't think it's like scary necessarily, but this bizarre finger that is a little spooky (laughs) because it's so skinny, uh, that can rotate 300 at the, at the knuckle for lack of better terms can rotate 360 degrees is just (laughs) breathtaking it's fascinating
0: it 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 it, it does and you start that's what i love again love about this podcast is the way we've laid it out the last four years is is when we do talk about evolution that's why i think evolution is important to talk about because you imagine this creature this primate this distant relative of ours evolves Teeth that continually grow because they use it to chew in wood chew on wood to chew holes, right? So they need that because if, if you if their teeth didn't grow, they would eventually wear them down to nubs and starve to death and die. That's what we see with a lot of animals, you know, elephants. Right. That's mm-hmm. what kills a lot of elephants. You know, they can't chew their food anymore. But their teeth keep growing. So with this primate, you have these growing teeth. This bizarre, bizarre middle finger. And then they have these huge ears. They've evolved these huge ears to echolocate like a bat. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's the
1: first time we're mentioning it. Probably the 30 minutes we've been on air right now or whatever. But yes, they are the only known primate to use echolocation. It's just, I just kept getting, my mind just kept getting blown this week. It was just like, wow. Wow. The i's the only primate to use echolocation to help find its prey, and when we talk about form and function, they have evolved these large, naked, so no hair on them for the most part, sensitive ears to help enhance their hearing, and the ears are lined with a like a series of complex ridges to help focus the sound um, when they are doing this behavior called percussive forging, which uh, is where they tap that middle finger, that long skeletal or middle finger. They tap, 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 tap on the tree, on wood, and up to eight times per second. And then the I uses sound signals or echolocation to find areas or cavities Uh, within the tree and or vibrations or movements of grubs, so insect larva. When they tap, 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 it disturbs them and the grubs move around and those sound signals, I'm I'm not doing this justice, but the sound signals come back to the eye-eye as sound waves and they can feel them. Uh, and basically detect. Okay, this is where I want to now use my gnarly rodent-like teeth mm-hmm. to bore in deep into a tree to find food. And then once the i i bores a hole or digs a hole with its teeth into the tree, it then uses that long middle finger like a uh, a scooper, like a spoon, because it can rotate 360 degrees to so just spoon those grubs
0: up and plop them in their mouth. And, and you brushed over it, but eight times per second. I'm sitting here trying to tap my fingers as fast as I, I can was, in a second. You we're
1: <laughs> such dorks. I tried the same thing. Like I it was like, I got my timer on. I'm like, what well, no, because <laughs> I uh, percussion. That's right. that was. I played. I played several instruments. Very uh, very amateur uh, as a hobby. Piano when I was a little kid, and then in middle school, I chose to play percussion. And I actually got to do like the snare drum on the marching band in high school and stuff, and so and then I fell in love with guitar in college because you can actually like carry it around and it's much easier to move than pianos yes. or, or, <laughs> or drum sets, right? Yes, yes, yes. But anyway, so yeah, I was trying to tap, 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 and I no, I couldn't do it either, mm-hmm. and just and so yeah, so I mean, so they have some speed muscles in their fingers as well that clearly we don't have um, some fast twitch muscles, right? And those skinny little fingers, which is just kind Crazy. of funny to visualize, but yeah. And then, and then they get some information from the sound waves that are produced from either a cavity. Like if you think of tapping on, you know, we tap on different surfaces, it makes different sounds if it's hollow or not hollow. And then I suppose it's going to make definitely different sounds. Um, And or be able to feel the vibrations and the movements of the insect larvae as they're saying, oh, no, Mm -hmm. I I read a funny meme that was like, these poor larvae, like every time they hear something tap on it, they're probably like, oh, no. it's like like their spooky halloween they're like oh no here it comes run and you know uh not that larvae can talk i'm a scientist i do understand or run (laughs) or (laughs) fair enough fair enough but yeah i like to visualize things and just that tap (laughs) tap tapping reminded me of the black-footed ferret but the black... there you go i was
0: gonna ask you who else taps their food (laughs) yes uh
1: they're tapping the the poor uh Prairie, prairie dogs, dogs.
0: in um, yeah, their sleep those,
1: at nighttime.
0: This is going way back early early days of the podcast. And we uh, we had the – yeah, the black-footed ferret would go sneak into the burrows at night, tap on the shoulder of the prairie dog to roll over so then they could go and grab it by the neck. So we had a fun time talking about that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so, but they're not yeah. tapping like eight times a second, no, right? No. Um,
0: oh, those poor prairie just- dogs.
1: For prairie dogs. But yes, I mean, and then I'm so glad that we dorked out about this feeding method, um, which is called percussive foraging. Mm -hmm. And that was a new word to me, which I guess shame on me. It shouldn't have been because it's also a term to describe how a woodpecker forages. Because the woodpecker here in North America, Mm -hmm. tap, 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 and it's doing something similar. Now they're tapping uh, at a crazy rate as mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. but uh they are of course um drilling holes into trees to uh look for insects as well. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, this progressive foraging really had me out and tapping my table with my yeah, short stubby fingers.
0: And you can't you, can't, you
1: can't do it. <laughs> and no, you yeah, you, you definitely can't do it. But uh it's just just so fascinating. And I was actually watching uh, some videos on YouTube, which we can put on our show notes of um, I, uh, from the I.I. I. foraging. It must have been caught on a, a nocturnal night camera uh, mm-hmm. because they are nocturnal. And I was reading that they'll spend between 5 and up to 40% of their nighttime doing this uh, percussive foraging, basically tap, tap, tapping, listening, feeling for whether or not there's insects in a cavity and then gnawing, biting into the wood, gnaw, gnaw, gnawing to make holes to then catch its prey with that skeletal or middle finger. Well, Amazing. It, it is. This it podcast is, is amazing. I like know. just when I think that my mind can't be blown anymore or oh there's uh, what, what am I going to dork out about this week? It's always a surprise because uh, percussive foraging and the finger anatomy was definitely some of it. And just for our listeners out there, a funny side note is uh, Chris and I just took uh, before this section, probably a 20 minute break dorking out about this scientific paper that we found uh, in the Journal of Experimental Biology, all about the hand and foot biomechanics of the II and why it does what it does and how it does it. And anyways, we're dorks. So you're welcome.
0: We are, we are, we We (laughs) do the hard work so we can break it down and and talk about it. Just some other things they eat, Angie, before we jump into other behaviors, you know, obviously insect larva, like we talked about, Uh, and you did mention seeds and, and fruits that they eat, fungi, uh, so they are omnivores, you know, like us, the primates um, with that. And then uh, predators for them, obviously, are birds of prey in Madagascar. The fossa, amazing. Oh, God, the fossa was so fun to, to cover.
1: That uh, was another fun one that surprised me. Madagascar is just
0: full of mm-hmm. treasures. They are. They are. And then humans, obviously, are, are a big threat to them. But what are some of these other nocturnal behaviors? I mean, the hunting was Phenomenal, like just so unique, so unique. But what are some of these other things they do?
1: Well, they are nocturnal. And so they're busy at nighttime and they have great locomotor abilities because they're always in the trees for most of their life. There's this arboreal creature uh, that can leap, jump, uh, run, uh, descend headfirst into trees and areas and reach speeds up to 20 miles per hour or 32 kilometers. So that was really fascinating to me. I don't know why. I guess I kind of figured they'd be slow cuz they're nocturnal, but they're they they can they can move and then they have great great tree gymnastics that they can do to stay up in the canopy and just hunt around. And on an average night the II can travel over 4 kilometers in the canopy uh foraging around looking for insects, uh fruit, uh, and other fun things to eat. So they're very, very busy. And when they're not busy hunting or foraging at night, um they are often found constructing this nest up in the treetops, often in like a, f- a fork of a tree branch. And uh the nest takes up to 24 hours to build and it's basically like an elaborate ball of Branches and leaves. And then during the day, because that's when they rest, you can typically find an eye eye all curled up in the nest, uh, like a little ball, just resting and relaxing and sleeping, of course, because, well, they're nocturnal and they're tired from jumping around and foraging all night long. And I thought it was cute, Chris. Like, the nest is for the individual. Um, but once in a while they'll like switch nests where somebody might sleep in their nest. Uh, and so they'll make another one and, or they will once in a while share nests on occasion, but it's really rare because in general, the II is mostly solitary. So they will sometimes be found hanging out with other IIs during, the breeding season or when they're, when they're courting another eye. And then in the evening, uh, depending on the season, they can be found foraging in parties of two to three individuals. Uh, but they're not what we think of as a social primate. Uh, when we think of tamarins and just all the other uh, social, most other primates that are super social and I eyes do have pretty distinct territories uh a female is going to have a little bit smaller territory than a, a male and hers will typically overlap several males and the male i i he's you know he's he's not that aggressive he's somewhat friendly in that he will tolerate sharing some of his territory with other males and if he bumps into another male's nest and it's unoccupied he might happen to fall asleep in there <laughs> even though it's not his uh so they're, they're pretty, they're not, you wouldn't, it'd be rare to see IIs fighting over territory, but they make their territory really well known by using scent markings from scent glands on their bums, on their necks, on their cheeks. And then uh, also they utilize um, some urine uh, scent marking behavior to help tell the other IIs, hey, this is my area. And in typical primate fashion, they do have several vocalizations, uh, and it might be a little bit of a spooky act over because they will do a scream um, to indicate aggression, which anybody who's ever watched a horror movie knows that that scream is pretty typical of what Mm -hmm. us primates do. Mm -hmm. Or if you're watching the horror movie and you're screaming at them, don't go down in the basement. Don't go down in the basement. Why would you go down in the basement? I always, always Yeah, but they also have this is a funny one. They also have uh, a scream variation where they close their mouth and it's m- more muffled, of course. And this is uh, reminding me of my children sometimes because this, this muffled mouth closed scream is more of a, a protest. So, uh, but they'll whimper um, over, uh, when they're uh, during competition. And uh, sometimes eyes uh, have been known to make a tiss, sound when seeing a human. And if they're fleeing a situa- situation, an I I will make like a I uh vocalization. So they're uh pretty noisy creatures when they're under stress, uh, but in general they're you're probably not gonna hear them make Social calls, uh, the way that like a gibbon will do, right? Some of our favorites. Uh, you know, you're a lovely animal dork when you and your kids make gibbon calls to each other, which <laughs> it's so sweet. My 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 no, sons did that no. the other day and I was like, oh, I love them so much. And then of course I made a gibbon call back to
0: them. <laughs> or the tiger chuff. You always did that one. Oh, that's a fun one too, I know, yes. I know. So you said, you know, they meet up, when, meet up to reproduce. What, what do we know about reproduction in them?
1: Well, Chris, a lot of what we know is from studying them under human care, and when they are under human care, uh, there doesn't seem to be much seasonality to the females' estrus cycle, as offspring can be born year round. Uh, but in the wild, it's thought that uh, their this the breeding season is long, and, and it may extend over a five month period from October to February. Uh, a lot of individuals have. Re- been reported mating during that time. uh, And there were a lot of visible signs of estrus in the female. And what we know so far about the female's estrus cycle is it can last anywhere from 21 to 65 days. So there's still definitely work to be done regarding II reproduction and what we know about it, but they are not monogamous. So it's not uncommon for a female to breed with different males in different seasons, or maybe even a couple different males in one season. And Chris, what I found fun about the IIs courtship behavior is with the IIs, it's not necessarily the males that are doing all these things to impress the female, but instead it's not uncommon for females to kind of go after or strut their stuff or challenge other females to score a male. Yeah, so I thought that yeah, yeah, pretty different. Yes, um, I mean I'm not going to mention names since the podcast, and maybe <laughs> my kids will listen someday. But there was a female uh, that I had to challenge a little bit to score John. Which, of course, I'm very competitive, so that just made me like want to hang out with him even more. So you know, it, it's uh, I'm a primate too. What can I say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but once male and females pair up, they'll Probably interact a little bit while they're foraging. And then when a female is pregnant, her gestation period is about 152 to 172 days, with the infants being born anywhere from February to September. And the infants, can we just talk about infant eye eyes for a moment? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So they have the same. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder as adults. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Except their colors a little bit different. They usually start their life as mostly silver with a little stripe on their back. And the color will change as they mature to that dark brown, that chocolate brown, or the black color with the silver tips. The infants have green eyes and floppy ears. So their ears are not erect in round slash triangular, mm-hmm. like the adults they are like floppy, floppy, cute little puppy ears, in my opinion, and then very bold green eyes, which their eyes will change and become a little bit more brown, golden in color as they or yellow, if you will, uh, as they age. But what's super fascinating about these little ugly duckling darling, eye infants is that they're very, very slow to grow and to mature. The eyes have a much slower developmental rate compared to other lemurs, which once again sets them apart. And when they've been observing infants for up to a year, they found that the young don't even think about leaving the nest until they're at least eight weeks old. They start to begin to try some solid food out when they're 20 weeks old. And a young I.I. doesn't really become proficient in all the locomotion techniques of being this arboreal, nighttime, acrobatic, foraging, amazing creature until it's about nine months old. And researchers have seen the I.I., I doing begging behaviors and making attempts to suckle uh, the dam or its mom when it's about one year old. So compared to other lemurs, uh, those stages are just much more lagging or much slower. Uh, And of course, researchers don't really know exactly why, but they they speculate a lot of it probably has to do with this really extreme and bizarre foraging behavior of the tap, tap, tap and the uh, Echo locating, and then you know, looking for grubs and other larvae. Uh, that has to be uh, it's it's highly developed, and and it, it takes time to probably learn that. And so they want to keep their young with them. And I should have mentioned, IIs give birth to just a singleton, right? Like primates, uh, like us, for the most part. And so, with that being said, there's a ton of parental investment by the mom. And so therefore, the II birth interval interval is about every two to three years. which is for a primate or a lemur, especially, that's a really long birth interval. And when you're talking about a species that's endangered and we want more numbers of them, if you only have a female iI giving birth to one singleton, one infant every three years, That's, I mean, that's why, I mean, it's going to take a long time for their numbers to bounce back, Mm -hmm. even if there weren't tons of threats to their conservation.
0: It is, it is. I mean, it is is concerning. I mean, like we said, they are endangered and they estimate anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 worldwide, you know. And they don't
1: reach sexual maturity until they're like two and a half years. So there's that as well for if they're thinking of trying to have uh, more female IIs have more infants. Yeah. So it is, it's definitely alarming.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've lost a lot of habitat, like, you know, a lot of these species on Madagascar have. Uh, Again, talking about the conservation efforts that are ongoing. Uh, Obviously, this famine this year doesn't help, but you know, conservationists around the world are, are really focused in on Madagascar because it is such a unique biome with so many unique species like the I. i And of these few 1000 I i left, they're in 16 protected areas across Madagascar. And like Angie said, it, it is tough to captive breed them, but there there is an effort of that ongoing, you know, zoos throughout the world helping, and then obviously in the ground there. So who do you want to support this week in highlight of IIs?
1: Well, Chris, you led me right into it is they are trying to learn more about uh, breeding them under human care. And so this week, I want to give a huge shout out to the Duke Lemur Center in North Carolina, which has been really influential in breeding IIs and learning more about more about their behavior in general, uh, in order to help conserve them in the wild. Um, And the Duke Lemur Center is known for not only the II, but several lemurs and trying to help uh, understand and conserve them. And so I just uh, am always so impressed by what they do for lemurs and, of course, IIs with that. And they can be found at www.lemur.duke.edu and so we'll put them out and they have a wonderful presence on facebook as well and other social media sites and so we'll, we'll put we'll put the duke lemur center on our show notes as well because it's on my bucket list to go there and or chris we need to get somebody on um on there front to the podcast because i think that they mm. could really oh yeah help inform us on of course the ii and their plight but just mm. lemurs in general which is are just household favorites by yeah. everybody and yeah. anybody who goes to zoos love seeing the lemurs. I love hearing the lemurs uh, learning more about them. And so, yeah, that'd be a great group to get on here as well. So check out the Duke lemur center.
0: Please do, please do. And just a shout out to dragon nudie who helped us lead the poll for next week's for next week's species. So thank you to our Patreon supporters. We will be covering that next week, but yeah, Angie, such a unique, unique, cousin of ours. I'm glad we finally covered him and I hope people really appreciate him.
1: Well, yeah, Kristen, I'm sure uh, when we get done with this podcast, you and I will probably stay online chit chatting for another <laughs> half an yeah. hour or so about them. Like, uh, just so, so guys, fun. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully you learned something. Uh, Take home message that I. I, is not an evil demon, a night spirit, a night terror or a bad omen. And uh, make sure and share that with a friend, but also share a photo with them and let us know if you think they're cute or only a face a mother could love. <laughs>
0: just like cupcake shout out to jen all right thanks thanks for listening thank you everyone listen learn share join the movement at allcreaturespod.com